We're switching gears now to the topic of eschatology. Remember last week we introduced the three main systems of eschatology? They were, give me one, postmillennialism. Another one, amillennialism and premillennialism. Okay, the key distinctions among those systems are the relationship between the second coming and the millennium. Premillennialists believe that the second coming precedes the millennium. Postmillennialists believe that the second coming follows the millennium. And amillennialists say, well, there really isn't a millennium. Okay, then within premillennialism, there are three essentially subcategories. They have to do with the time of the rapture. There's the pre-trib rapture view. says the rapture comes before the tribulation. The mid-trib rapture view says the rapture is somewhere within the tribulation, not at the beginning and not at the end. And then the post-trib rapture view, which says it comes at the end of the tribulation. But those are subcategories of premillennialism. Okay? Now, what we're going to do tonight is work through, hang on a second, I seem to have lost a slide, but we'll be all right. Okay, what we're going to do is look at four covenants that God made with the nation of Israel. Now, the reason we're going to do this is that in order to come to a conclusion which of those three main systems of eschatology is most biblically correct, we need to have some idea of the big picture of what God wants to get accomplished. The question is not so much what's going to happen in the future, but how we arrange the events in sequence and in causality. Um, the argument we're going to use is that God is faithful. <coughs> What's the word faithful mean? A faithful person is a person who is going to do what he says he's going to do. A person who keeps his promises. Now, what I will argue is that God has made a number of promises some of which have been fulfilled and some of which haven't. By looking at the already fulfilled promises, we can see that God does keep his promises. By looking at the unfulfilled promises, we can conclude that God will fulfill them in the future. And by examining the unfulfilled promises, we will be able to come up with a structure to hang the future events on in such a way that it will eliminate Postmillennialism and amillennialism, and it will show that premillennialism must be correct. That's the way I'm going to approach this. Now, as I said last week, I recognize that not everybody in here may be a premillennialist. But I'm going to present this to you in this way, and we can discuss it as we go through. Here. A uh, quick question. Uh, when you talk about the, the three different systems, I'm just wondering out loud if, um, because premillennialists focus on the 1,000 years in that verse in Revelation. They don't. As far as, can there be overlap in people who hold amillennialism, you know, and still say, yeah, there's an earthly eschaton, but where the 1,000 years falls doesn't really matter? Or in, 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 in practice, there doesn't seem to be that kind of a thing. Everybody pretty much falls into one of the categories. Now, th th there are sort of different ways they would nuance it. But when we're talking about a sequence of events and the causal relation between them, what comes first and what affects what comes after, you can't have sort of, at least I don't know anybody who has a nebulous millennium, you know, like with the, with the return of Christ in the middle of it or something like that. Everybody pretty much fits into one of those slots. There may be some wackos who don't, but honestly I've never run into them. It's, it's, it's pretty cut and dry. Um, and and we want to focus on the main views and make sense of them. So that's what we're going to do. Okay? All right. 
Let's talk about the four covenants. We're going to do this very quickly. You have a handout. It looks like this, which I asked you to look at last week. That's basically what we're going to work through up here. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant was first spoken by God to Abraham in Genesis 12. He expanded on it into the details in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 21, and Genesis 22. Now, that covenant has a number of provisions. In each case, we're going to look at the text, the provisions, the kind of covenant, and some other details. Okay, God promised Abram a particular parcel of land. Now, in Genesis 12, he just says, go to a land that I'm going to show you. It's not really until Genesis 15 that God says, look around, all this land that you see I'm going to give you, and he actually gives him borders that go all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to the Euphrates River. It's a very big parcel of land, which, by the way, is bigger than anything Israel has ever controlled in her history, and certainly is bigger than what they control now. God promised that a great nation would come from Abram. Now, when God first made the promise in Genesis 12, he didn't say that this will be the offspring of you and Sarah. And that's why Abram and Sarah tried to produce a child through Hagar, and they did, but God said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the way it's going to be. It's going to be yours and Sarah's son, and that's the way it worked out. Now, through that one son, a huge nation came into existence, and one of the great anomalies of human history, of world history, is the fact that the Jews still exist, and they still have an identity, and they haven't been wiped out, they haven't been assimilated, um, and we've seen that promise being fulfilled for generations. What's that? Absolutely. (laughs) That's right. All right. God said all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. I don't think it was entirely clear to what God was referring at the time. Abram might have thought back to the prediction that the seed of the woman would undo the damage that Satan had done. I think it's clear that at least one of the ways, and certainly the most important way, that all the families of the earth have been blessed through Abram is what? Yes, the coming of Christ, because Christ is one of his descendants. And lastly, God said to Abram, I will bless him who bless I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And you know, it's kind of interesting. Why does he say I will bless them that bless you and curse him who curses you? Some people think that the him refers directly to Satan. I don't know. But what is that a, a prediction of? It's a promise of protection. And God has protected them, obviously, through history. Now, circumcision, contrary to popular belief, is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, not of the Mosaic covenant. Okay, God gave the sign to Abraham. Okay, who was this covenant made with? It was made with Abraham and his chosen seed. Now, when I say his chosen seed, who did the choosing? God did, okay? Did you ever think about the fact that Abraham's second-born son was the one to whom the promises were passed to? And Isaac's second-born son was the one to whom the promises were passed to? Contrary to what was normal in Asian culture at that time. And in each case, the parents resisted. But God said, this is the way it's going to be. Now, this is important because some of the Arabs are descendants of Abraham. But they do not have a title to the land of Israel. Now, they would argue that they do. And they would say that Ishmael is the firstborn son, and therefore the land is his, and that the Jews doctored the Old Testament some cases they would argue that I believe okay but we obviously don't believe that we take scripture at face value okay what kind of covenant is this there are basically two kinds of covenants we talked about this last week this is an unconditional covenant 
and that God doesn't say, if you obey me, you know, if you leave your family behind and go to the promised land, he just says, I'm going to do these things. And this covenant is, in a very real sense, foundational to all the other covenants. It establishes the Israelites as a people. It establishes the focus of God's blessing upon them with the land. It establishes that he will protect them and provide for them and use them to bless the rest of the world. Okay? Yeah, it's, it's amazingly unconditional, right? Yeah, Abraham is essentially tied up and drugged watching while God does this covenant cutting procedure. You know, I mean, it's not really drug, but he's in a trance. You all know about covenant cutting? Have we talked about that before? Okay, let's talk about that briefly. In the ancient world, if two men wanted together and get together and make some kind of a contract, like they're going to say, we're going to divide our farms right here by this brook. That side's yours, this side is mine. What they would do is they would get an animal. They would kill the animal, hack it in two pieces. They put one piece here and one piece here. And then each one of them would walk through and they'd say, may God do that to me if I break my promise. Okay? Now in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham to bring a bunch of animals. Abraham kills the animals, splits them in two parts, and he sort of makes this corridor here. And then God immobilizes Abraham. He goes into a trance, but he can see what hap what's happening. And this smoking fire pot and burning torch, which seemed to be some kind of visible representation of the holiness of God, passes between these two rows of hacked up, dismembered animals. And it's like God saying, I will die before I break my promise. And that's what Bob is referring to. It's it's an extraordinarily unilateral, unconditional thing. God doesn't even let Abraham say anything. He doesn't even say, do you want this stuff? He just says, I'm going to do it, and I'll die before I break my promise. And that's very important for our understanding of future events. Okay. We next come to what is sometimes called the Palestinian or the land or the Mosaic Covenant. I talked about this last Sunday in church. Most of you were there for that. Some of you weren't. Um, this covenant is first found in Leviticus 26. Leviticus is a record of teaching that God gave to Moses to give to the Israelites when they were camped at the base of Mount Sinai when God gave the law. They left Mount Sinai. They went up to Kadesh Barnea. They were preparing to go into the promised land. And they sent out the spies, and the spies came back, and ten of them said, we can't do this. God won't give us victory, and they rebelled against God. And God said, because you've rebelled, every one of you who is 20 years old or older is going to drop dead before these, this group of people gets a second chance to go into the land. So they wandered for another 38 years. And in 1406, they came up to the east bank of the Jordan River. They camped there. Moses taught them again. This new generation that had grown up needed to be taught the law again. The record of that teaching is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And God led Moses up into the mountains and he died. And then Joshua led the people across the river into the promised land and they undertook the conquest. Now Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30 contain a more detailed expression of what was found in Leviticus 26 plus an additional prediction and you'll see why that prediction is important. The provisions of this covenant, first of all, very, very important is that God said, if you're obedient to me, I will bless you. If you're disobedient to me, I will curse you. Now the blessings that God was speaking of were physical, biological, economic, and political. There are things you could put on your spreadsheet, things you could measure, things you could write down in the newspaper.
God is not just saying, if you are faithful to me, you will be happy and contented and have a smile on your face and a song in your heart. He's saying, you will get rich. You will get powerful. Your family will grow big. You will become famous. Okay? Now, in the same way that the blessings that God promised for disobedience were tangible, the curses would be the removal of these blessings and then the reversal of them. You know, drought, miscarrying wives, um, poverty, you know, enslavement to people who loan you money, harassment by your neighbors, and worse. Now, God predicted that if they persisted in sin, he would send in foreigners who would besiege their cities, capture them, conquer them, and expel them from the land. Now, here, we've got to be very careful. Did the fact that God expelled the Jews from the land mean that the land was no longer theirs? Why not? Okay, because of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. Well, it was theirs. No, I, I, I have to disagree with you, Peter, but, but I know what you're saying. Okay, It wasn't theirs in the sense that they could be there and enjoy it. God said, you can't be there. But it is theirs by divine right. Okay. Now, another a way to sort of put together what I was just saying and what Peter is saying is that God is essentially saying, I get to determine when you get to live in the land and enjoy it. But God is also saying, I will never take away the right of a future generation who will return to me to live in that land and enjoy it forever. So the deed is theirs forever, but whether they get to enjoy it is determined by God. It's kind of like, you know, if I have a young child, I say I'm going to buy you a bicycle, but if you don't do your homework, you can't ride it. Okay? It's sort of like that. Bob? Yes. The ending of that may return. Yes. That's right. And, you know, during the siege of Jerusalem, God is going to tell, Je- I think it's Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, go buy a field and then take the deed to this field and put it in a jar and bury it. Jeremiah is saying, well, what am I going to do this for? The Babylonians are about to conquer it. And the answer is, well, guess what? That deed is actually valid. And one day your descendants will come back here and if they can dig that jar up, that land will be theirs because they will have the deed, just like Israel has the deed to the land. Okay. Now the main issue when we're talking about obedience and disobedience is idolatry. The main thing that God wants the Israelites to do is to worship him alone. And by the way, if they do that, and they do that faithfully, they're going to obey the rest of the law. It all sort of comes together as a package. And you can see in history that when they begin to drift into idolatry, what do they also drift from? Obedience to the law. Okay? Now, when we come to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and again, I'm not reading this because our time is short. I hope you had time to look at it uh, between last class and this class. God moves from, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. To, you will disobey me. I will impose the worst curses of the covenant on you. I will expel you from the land. But a day will come when you will all repent and turn back to me. And when you do... I'll gather you from wherever you are and bring you back to the land. Now this is essentially a prediction. And a prediction is essentially a promise when it has to do with the work of God. So what I'm saying is that part of this covenant is conditional and part of it is unconditional. Okay? Now, I would argue, and I do this on the basis of Deuteronomy 29, at the beginning of the chapter, there's a statement that says, this is the covenant that Moses made with the Israelites, or that God made with the Israelites, in addition to what he did at Horeb. 
basically what I'm saying is the Palestinian or land covenant, see this is where it gets confusing, includes the law, which some people call the Mosaic covenant. It's all a package. Life in the land is to be ruled by the law. That's really what the law was for. How to relate to the true God when you live in the land that he has given to you. Okay? Now who was this covenant made with? It was made with all Israel, all the descendants of Jacob. And as we said earlier, it's both conditional and unconditional. Okay? All right, let's go on to the next covenant, the Davidic covenant. Now this one is found in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, and Psalm 89, and there's a little reference to it in Jeremiah 33. Okay. This covenant was made with David by God. The occasion was that David had, had become settled and established in his kingdom. And he looked around and he had peace on all sides and he had a lot of wealth. And he called the prophet Nathan and he said, Nathan, the tabernacle is sitting in, I'm sorry, the, the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in a tent. I want to build a temple or a house for God and Nathan says great idea but that night God speaks to Nathan he says Nathan not a great idea you go talk to David and say because there's blood on your hands you can't build the house instead God is going to build a house for you now there's a play on words there because house can mean temple it can also mean dynasty <clears throat> okay so that's where this covenant came into <coughs> came into being. All right. God makes an unconditional promise that David will have a never-ending dynasty. Now, it's common to say this and I like this. When we talk about the Davidic covenant, God is promising Laura Oh, that's not a strange question at all. It's a great question. I'm Jewish. Um, and the answer is no. And the reason is that when Jerusalem was burned by the, by the Romans in A.D. 70, the records, the genealogical records that would have allowed that to be done were lost. Now, there are probably Jews who have maintained a tradition they say, well, we know what tribe we're from and may have kept records from that time, but there's not actually a solid, unbroken, chronological, legal record going back to that. Okay. Now, what's interesting about your question is that Jesus, who came and like a lot of other guys said, I am the Messiah, could prove that he was from the tribe of Judah and that's where Messiah had to come from. After A.D. 70, there's no way to, for anybody to really prove that he's a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Oh, of course, right, of Christ. Yeah, I mean, After that, well, there's no way to prove it. Uh, uh, for me, I can't tell you what. No, no, no. I can't tell you what tribe I'm from. For example, yeah, I may not have been clear there. Okay. Now that's a great question. Now, when you read this, if you've read it. Okay, I hope you saw that there's a clear statement that a descendant of David will rule over the people and nation of Israel. Okay, the real ruler. There's a real reign and there's a real realm. It's a prediction, in a sense, that the kingdom which God started under David would continue eternally. Now, what's very interesting about the way that this covenant is made is that God does not say, from this point forward, David, your dynasty will never fail to reign. He just says that your dynasty will be established forever. And in saying it that way, God left open the possibility that the kingdom for a time would go out of existence and then it would come back into existence. But once it comes back into existence, 
and is established permanently, it will never end. Now we know, looking back over history, that in 586 the kingdom ended, right? Has there ever been a king of the Jews since then? Not a legitimate king of the Jews. One day Christ will come back and he will fulfill this prediction. Now the other thing that wasn't clear from this is that as far as what we know from the Davidic covenant, God could have God could in the future fulfill that promise by causing there to be a chain of rulers. A father who begets a son who rules, who begets a son who rules, who begets a son who rules. It goes on forever. It could be fulfilled that way from what is said here, but we know that Christ is what? He's, he's immortal, and he, he will be the one who reigns continuously. So it's not going to be a chain of humanly generated rulers. It's going to be one eternal ruler. Okay? Laura? Why did he Well, that's a great question. Um, hmm. Let's talk about that at the end of class if we have time. Okay? okay? It's a good question. It's an important question. Okay. Now, in this covenant, God also promised that if Solomon was a godly man, he would bless him, and if he was an ungodly man, he would penalize him. And we know from history that both of those things happened. Now, God also promised, and, and this, this, in a sense, is just this sort of leapfrogging over time. There was an unconditional promise that David's future son would reign forever. Now, <clears throat> let me... How many of you actually read that thing last week? Okay, just a couple of you. And, and, yeah, and some of you have read it before. If you go back and you read this, what you discover is that the way it's worded, it sort of leaves, it leaves open the leapfrogging over this interval in the middle where there will be no kingdom and no king. And it also leaves a way for Solomon not to see his kingdom established, but to Dave, for David to see his kingdom established. Because Solomon's kingdom, in a sense, was broken up, but since this was looking forward to the future descendant of David, <coughs> David's kingdom through that, future, through that future descendant will be established. Am I being confusing? Okay. chapter 11 says they're looking forward to a city which has foundations and the fact that all these Jews died without ever receiving what was promised to them. That's essentially looking forward to the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you go to the Gospel of Luke when the angels announce the birth of Jesus. They say this is the son of David who will have this kingdom that will never end. Now, so, so, you know, this, this again is very foundational for a lot of New Testament doctrine, as you're saying. Okay, this covenant was made with David, and it is conditional in what it says about Solomon in particular, and it's unconditional in its prediction that one day in the future, David's dynasty and the reign of that dynasty over a real realm, the land of Israel, and a real people, the Israelites, will be established. Here. Um, I, I noticed like in the Mosaic uh, where we say it's both conditional and unconditional. Uh -huh. are, are these just one covenant or are these multiple covenants in there? I mean, I, it's either, shouldn't it be all one or the, all the other in the sense that well, you're breaking up different elements, but is it one covenant or is it I, I, I think they're one covenant because they're spoken on one occasion to one, a per, one person by one person. But, you know, I think what you're pointing out is important. It's kind of, it's think of a covenant like a legal contract, okay? 
Okay? You can have a legal contract that has both conditional and unconditional provisions. You know, for example, um, you know, if I, if I leave something in my will to somebody and I will say, you know, if this person attends college, a certain amount of this money will be released for that person's tuition. But when that person reaches the age of 30, all the money will be placed in his or her hands. You know, so you, you can have conditional and unconditional aspects. I, the, the importance of recognizing the distinction between these is that if we made the mistake of saying that since part of the provisions of the covenant were conditional, that means all of it is conditional, then that opens the idea that God could cancel his promises because of human failure to perform. But if, you know, if you look at the way this covenant is written or the Palestinian covenant, in each case, it's very clear that God says, regardless of how you perform, there are certain things that I'm going to do. And, uh, and that's why we make these distinctions. But I do think they're single covenants. Laura. Sure. I might even answer. Okay. Well, Israel was given their land in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I mean, we, we could we could get really wide on this, but I'll just make a few quick remarks, and that may not be a sufficient answer, but I'll try. God chose Israel to perform a task for him. And that task was to demonstrate to the world his nature through his interactions with them. Okay? To put it in theological terminology, he glorified himself through his interactions with them. Now, God chose to bring the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, through that nation. He also chose to demonstrate to the world the abundance of his grace and power and mercy and the severity of his judgment. Um, the Jews have had enormous highs and terrible lows. And if you look at other nations in human history, it's really hard to find any other group of people that has been so small and so harassed and so pushed around, it's maintained its identity, its religion, its culture, its language, but they have. That in itself is a strong argument for the existence of God because you have to explain this when it hasn't happened with anybody else. Um, now, the land that God gave to Israel, he will one day restore them to. And we'll see that as we work through this course. Um, you know, Jerusalem is there. Jerusalem is the site where God chose to, Scripture says, place his name, which means put his temple there. God just said, that's where I want it to be. And it's going to be there again. Um, when we talk about the importance of Israel, and I'll finish with this, we need to recognize that there are special people because they've been given a special role by God but they're no more special than anybody else in terms of the mercy of salvation. Not every Jew who has lived in history has been saved. In fact, I suspect the majority of them are in hell today and many more will go there. Okay, um, Just like not every other person who lives on the earth will be saved. Salvation has always been by grace. It's always been offered to whoever will come. So the Jews have a special role, but they're not special in terms of salvation. God will save whoever comes. Okay? We'll stop there. There's probably more that could be said, but that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. The last covenant is the new covenant. Now, you can find this in Jeremiah 31 and 32 and Ezekiel 37. There are a number of provisions in this covenant. Now, the new covenant is different than the other covenants. The record of the new covenant in the Old Testament is not 
the making of a covenant. It's a prediction of the making of a covenant. God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a covenant with the nation of Israel. He didn't make it then. He just predicted that he would. Okay? This covenant will bring about universal conversion in Israel. There will be a point in history when every living Jew will be saved. And we'll talk about what that point in history will be later on in the course. There's a prediction that the law will be placed in their hearts. There's a prediction that they will all know God from the greatest to the least. There won't be any Jew alive on earth at that time who doesn't know him. Sin and iniquity will be dealt with in a way that they've never been dealt with before. Now, by the way, although it is very common for people to read this in, it does not say that God will give the indwelling Holy Spirit. Everybody thinks it does, but you look for it, and I don't think you'll find it. Okay, show me that, because I was looking for that. Okay, let's see. I will put my spirit... Well, no, you're right. You're right. It's there. Um, so I need to remove that. See, I was looking for this, and I couldn't find it. Well... No, no, I don't think it does. I, I, I think I spoke carelessly. I, the point that I'm trying to make here, however, is... Well, okay, what, what I'm trying to say is I don't think that the new covenant is a prediction of the church. Okay? Personally, I don't think it's about the church. I think it's about, I think it's about Israel. And see this word, the indwelling spirit? When I say this, I'm talking about in the New Testament sense of being sealed. Okay? And I'm not sure that that's what that's talking about. Okay? Um, Peter. Uh, I was going to ask, well, number three there says the law will be placed in their hearts. What law is that referring to in Jeremiah? I think it's referring to the Mosaic law in the sense that they will have a desire to fulfill it. I think that's what it's referring to. Okay. Now, by the way, although it's my opinion this is not talking about the church, there are lots of theologians who disagree. Okay. So this is this is the area in which it's most likely that there will be some of you who disagree with me. And I can live with that if you can. Well, and that's also to disagree with you a little bit. Uh -huh. That verse, it does say that that spirit in you will move you to follow my decrees, where it's going to work somewhat. Yes, 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 I agree. Here. Um, from someone who does disagree, I just would ask, uh, how would you handle then the passage where it says, you know, when Jesus says, you know, this is... You know, yeah. This is the new covenant in my blood. Okay. I'll, I'll, okay. I'm, I'm going to hit you with this really quickly. And what I believe that Jesus cut this covenant on at his crucifixion, essentially. At that moment, the covenant was formalized, and that God, it's like God signing the, the contract. I believe that these events will be fulfilled at the second coming second coming, immediately following the sheep and goats judgment will be the only time in all of human history when every living Jew will be a believer. Okay? That's my view. Now, th there are other ways of handling this. Okay? And by the way, this covenant is the one that has the least direct bearing on what we'll be doing with eschatology. And you'll see why in a few minutes. Okay? Now, it is clearly stated in Jeremiah 31 that this covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And at that point in history, when the kingdom was split, to say the house of Israel and the house of Judah was the clearest way of saying all the descendants of Jacob. Okay? And it's most definitely not saying the church. Well, okay, I believe that this is predicting what will happen at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Yes. Okay. <clears throat>
Now, this is an unconditional covenant, but as I said, it wasn't established at the time it was announced. I should say announced there. No. It'll probably be a long one. Go ahead. You do this to me all the time. No. Like I said, only at that one moment. As soon as they have a kid, it's all messed up. Okay. Good question. Okay. Now, let's, let's finish with this. I think I, I've got maybe this slide and one more. Okay. The question now is which of the provisions that we've seen have been fulfilled already and which haven't? Okay. The Abrahamic covenant, did Israel become a great nation? Yes. Has Israel possessed the land eternally? No. Even today, they don't possess the land that is theirs. They have a tiny little piece of it. Laura. Um, what happens if right now Israel has the land taken away? Okay, that's a great question. Nothing. In fact, God will not have been proved to be a liar because Israel being in the land today is not a fulfillment of any biblical prophecy. Okay? Now, there are people who would disagree with me on that, but the predictions of Scripture are that God will bring the people back to the land when they have all repented all over the world. And that hasn't happened yet. Okay, so it's when there's a worldwide change. Yes. Okay, have all the nations of the earth been blessed through Israel? They certainly have through Christ. Now, there may be other blessings to come, and I think there are, in fact. The Palestinian covenant. Did God discipline the nation by blessing and cursing them? Yes. Has he exiled them? Yes. Have they returned to the land in repentance? No, they haven't. If you go to Israel today, they don't recognize their Messiah. Most of them are atheists. Okay, They're Jews, but they're not God-fearing Jews who recognize Jesus as Messiah. It, it, it could be part of what God will do to set up what is predicted in Scripture, but it's not the fulfillment of what's predicted in Scripture. Well, I, I know you want to say that, and you want to, well, you may want to say that for a number of reasons. One reason why, peop- why believers want to say that is they've been taught this for, for the last 60 years, and they've been taught wrong. Um, frankly, the, 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 re- the re- what? Okay, listen to me carefully, and be careful, listen to what I do say and what I don't say. The return of the Jews to Israel in 1948 was not the fulfillment of any biblical prophecy and is not a necessary antecedent to the predicted return to the land. Now, going over to Laura's question, she's anticipating the next thing that comes from what I just said, which is, what if they get kicked out? And the answer is, who cares? Now, and I'm saying, who cares in terms of the big picture? We do know that God is going to bring them back. We do know that he'll bring them back in the context of national repentance. Since the national repentance hasn't occurred, Whatever is going on in Israel could be part of the sequence of events that lead up to that, or it could not be. And the presence of Israel in the land tells us nothing about the nearness of the return of Christ. It could be 500 or 1,000 years from now. It could be, you know, the rapture could be next week. Um, Yeah, amen. (laughs) Amen. Now, there has been lots and lots of teaching in the church arguing that the presence of Israel in the land tells us that the return of Christ is near. And, and, and Okay. Okay. I mean, they could be kicked out next month. Mm. But what I'm saying is okay. that because they seem to be present in Israel when the tribulation is going on. Sure. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. 
Well, sure they can. Sure they can. Then other Jews could come back in. Absolutely. 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 No, you're absolutely right. Um, okay. Yes. We, we know from the book of Daniel, we know from a lot of places that there are going to be Jews in the land during the tribulation. All I'm saying, and again, I'm saying that the presence of the Jews in the land today is not necessarily the fulfillment of any prophecy. It could be, but it's not necessarily. Okay? Does that make sense? And, 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 right. In, in preparation for the events of the tribulation. Yes, you're right. And in fact, I think I may not have said it right earlier, but I think we got it right now. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, the Davidic covenant. Did Solomon build the temple? Yes. Was Solomon disciplined? Yes, the kingdom split. Is David's heir reigning forever in the land of Israel over the people of Israel? No. Okay. Now, we haven't talked about this, but what I've put here is the time when these predictions will be fulfilled. Okay. Now, essentially, what we are beginning to see here is that there has to be a future literal reign of the Messiah on this earth over the people of Israel in their land in order for these covenants to be fulfilled. And the only one of the three systems that has an opportunity for that to happen is the premillennial system. That's really where all this is going. I have a quick question. Yes. Is there any, any way to work in some type of, uh, like, or is, is this even true? Like, is there some type of figurative reign that Christ is reigning right now as our figurative kingdom going Sure, on? sure. Okay. Or is that there, more of an view? Well, okay. There, there are premillennialists who believe that there is a form of the kingdom present today and there are some who don't. I happen to be one of the ones who don't. I don't believe that the church is the kingdom of Christ. But there are lots of people in this church who do and lots of premillennialists who do. Um, you know, we've got people in our church who will pray, Lord, help us to advance your kingdom. You'll never hear me pray that because I don't think his kingdom is here. Um, I think his church is here. But I, I don't get upset when people say that. <clears throat> Um, if you want to say that there is a spiritual reign of Christ in the hearts of believers, I have no problem with that. Where I get upset, though, is when people start saying that that spiritual reign of Christ in the hearts of believers is the fulfillment of these things that the covenant was talking, the covenants were talking about. That's where I get upset, and I can't accept it. But it's not just on millennialists and post-millennialists who talk about a kingdom existing now. Many premillennialists do too. By the way, you, most of you know who Dr. P is. You know, he's a very dear friend of mine. He's my mentor. Almost everything I've learned, I learned from him. Yeah, that, yeah. But I disagree with him on that matter. He believes there is a mystery form of the kingdom in existence today. I don't think there is. It's probably one of the few things I disagree with him on. Okay. Israel dwelling in her land forever. Does that happen? No. That will happen in the millennial kingdom and will continue on in the eternal state. Is David reigning eternally over Israel? No. But it's going to happen. Okay? Now, the conclusion, and we'll be done with this, only the premillennial system with its recognition of a future for the literal nation Israel allows for God to fulfill his covenant promises to her. Here's a question for you. Can we argue that God, who swore to Israel, can change or cancel his promises to them without, A, impugning his character, or B, undermining our confidence in his promises to us? This second one should be a big ouch to anyone who questions premillennialism. And, and this, this is really why I'm a premillennialist. I think that God is faithful. I think that he can be trusted. Okay, So that is why I believe that this system that we looked at last week is the correct view, or at least the closest that we've got. So when there's a millennial kingdom, are there still unbelievers? 
Yes. Okay. And so then after that, then they go to hell, and then you go to heaven. That well, heaven? the new heavens and new earth. Okay. Okay. Heaven, heaven, heaven is a temporary place. Okay. We are designed for existence in a real physical universe. Now, won't we? When we die, if I die today, I'll go to heaven. But one day I'll be resurrected. And eventually I'll come back to earth to live with Christ during the millennial reign. And then eventually after that, when he creates a new heavens and new earth, I'll live in that again in my physical body. In It'll be a better existence than what we have now, but it's going to be this. We are not going to be disembodied spirits with little white feathers on our backs, floating on clouds, strumming harps, singing stupid praise songs all day long. <laughs> You've heard this routine before, I'm sure. That's exactly what it is. In fact, the millennial kingdom will take place on this planet, which will not be... It's not In the millennial kingdom, it's going to be this earth. It's at the end of the millennial kingdom, following the great white throne judgment, that God will replace this universe with a new one, and interestingly, even the new universe seems to bear a strong resemblance to this one, except things like sin and sorrow and death and suffering will have been removed. Andrew. So, will the unsaved the Oh, they won't screw everything up. It, it's, it, there probably will, but when it occurs, it will be dealt with quickly. Yeah. Saved people, if they're mortals, can be killed, sure. If you're resurrected, you can't be killed. Okay, so it's only We'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. Um those of you who want to can jot these things down and look at them during the week. Okay, let's pray and let's go home and let's rejoice that the Lord protected us from bad weather. Father, thank you for the time you've given us tonight. Thank you for the rain. Thank you that at least here there's not been any damage. We do ask that you bring each one of us home safely. That you'd help us to deal with any damage there may be from the storm. Father, please help us to walk faithfully with you in the days ahead. To allow your spirit to guide us and fill us. That we may be honoring to you and and a blessing to those around us. We pray this in your Son's name.